I'm James. If we haven't met, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And this is week two of a series that we're doing called Predecide. And in this series, we're talking about decisions because decisions are extremely important. Now, here's something that most of us are going to think is true. Decisions, the quality of our decisions impacts the direction of our life. We make our decisions, and our decisions end up making us. Now, here's the problem with this. Uh, a lot of us are terrible decision makers. Uh, I want you actually to turn to your neighbor and to say, sometimes I make bad decisions. <laughs> you, you can do it. I know you can do it. <laughs> sometimes I make bad decisions. Yep. Now, some of us are like, sometimes is an understatement. I make bad decisions a lot of the time. And that's why in this series, we are thinking about the types of people that God wants us to become and some of the decisions that we can make now that will help us become the type of people that God wants us to be in the future. We are pre-deciding to try and become the types of people that God wants us to be. And last week, we talked about pre-deciding to be ready to fight temptation. And this week, we are going to talk about pre-deciding to be consistent. But before we do that, we need to take a second to pray together. And before we do that, we need to take a second just to give credit where credit is due. We as a church are extremely thankful to Life Church Oklahoma City for the resources that they offered that got us started on this series. So if I say something, you're like, wow, James, that was really, really wise. Uh, it may be that we got that from Life Church Oklahoma City. Uh, so just giving credit to where credit's due there. But hey, let's, let's pray together. God, what an exciting day. We got to see how you've been at work bringing people to you, and we got to celebrate that in baptism. God, we love you, and we're extremely thankful for what you've been doing in this church. And this morning, we want to ask you that you will keep using this series to help us grow closer to you. Lord, we also want to take some time to lift up our sister, Krasasha, who has a scan this week to find out more about what's going on. Um, we pray that you give the doctors clarity that you give her comfort and peace, and that together you're able to help the doctors and Krasasha find a, a plan that gives her good quality of life and a pathway forward. Lord, we pray for us as a church that for all those who are um, struggling in the, in the next weeks, that you help us be a church that offers support and encouragement. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. So here's a quote that has always been extremely challenging for me. Craig Rochelle says this. He says, successful people do consistently what other people do occasionally. It's a good quote, isn't it? Successful people do consistently what other people do occasionally. Now, the goal of the Christian life is not to be successful in worldly terms, but this idea, it does apply in so many ways to our walk with Jesus. For example, why are people who are incredibly wise so wise? Well, it's because they've consistently applied themselves to the things that help them gain wisdom. 
And why are people who have an incredibly deep understanding of Scripture so knowledgeable? Well, it's because they have consistently studied Scripture and studied about Scripture. And why are people who are irrationally generous able to be so generous? Well, it's because they consistently plan to be generous and they consistently stick to a budget that allows them to be. One of my mentors in ministry, he is probably one of the most knowledgeable people about the Bible that I've ever met. Like one of those folks that you can just like sit down and listen to them talk about the Bible for hours. Well, once he told me how he had become so knowledgeable, and he said, basically, when he was young in his faith, he decided he would commit 30 minutes a day to reading scripture. And over the course of 30 years, that 30 minutes a day paid dividends in how much he came to know about Jesus and following him. Consistency, it plays a huge role in our growth in Jesus. Now, for the skeptics and critics out there, I can hear what you're thinking. You're like, mm, well, I've never once read in the Bible the word consistent. There's no section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus like, blessed is the consistent, for he will gain the benefits of being consistent, you know? I hear you on that objection. And so let me ask you just to think a little bit about this. While we might not see the word consistent in the teachings of Jesus or of the apostles, but consistency, it is a character trait that undergirds much of the instruction that we find in the New Testament. For example, when Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, the assumption is that this is something that we will strive to apply with some degree of consistency. Jesus isn't saying, hey, love your neighbor when it's convenient. And he's not saying, hey, love your neighbor when it's beneficial or easy. No, there is a degree of consistency that is implied in that instruction to love your neighbor. And that goes for so many things. For example, when Paul is talking to Timothy about how to be an effective pastor, he tells him this. He says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Those words, in season and out of season, with great patience, those are words that are talking about a commitment to consistent action. Why does Timothy have to have great patience when ministering to his congregation? Because he's got to do things consistently over and over again, even if he doesn't see the fruit of it right away. This is a commitment to consistency. And there's another passage from the Apostle Paul. This is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In other words, Paul's saying here, Jesus came to save us and teach us to regularly say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. That's pretty much consistency, isn't it? It's learning in the various parts of our lives to say no to the wrong things and to regularly say yes to the right things. Consistency, while it might not be directly mentioned, it's there underneath much of what we read in the New Testament. And here's the deal with consistency. It often makes all the difference between growing deep and strong in our faith and not. 
Consistency helps us grow deep and it helps us grow strong. And it's an extremely important thing for us to commit to. And so today, I'm going to talk about a Bible character who's probably like the most consistent person that we find in scriptures. His name is Daniel. For those of you who grew up in Sunday school, you're like, Daniel, I know this guy. And from what we know about Daniel, he was consistent in so many places in his life. It was one of his strong suits. For example, he was consistent morally. He knew the commands of God, and he strove to keep them even when circumstances were really hard. Uh, if you know the, the story of Daniel, you know what I'm talking about there. And he was consistent as a leader, so much so that his consistency set him apart above all the other leaders in Babylon. And he was consistent spiritually. I mean, this man made prayer a priority. He would pray three times a day, day after day after day. Now, we're going to look at one specific story about Daniel. For this story to make sense, as usual in the Old Testament, you got to know a little bit of the background information. You see, when Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, they forced a ton of the, the Hebrew people to immigrate, forced exile into the different parts of Babylon. So they took them out of Judah and spread them across this Babylonian empire. And along with that, the Babylonian leaders went to the nobility and the wealthy people of influence in Judah, and they picked out of those wealthy and noble families um, a bunch of young men that they then would transplant to the capital city in Babylon and force them to learn the ways of Babylonian leadership. Essentially, they took all these young men, they took them to the capital city, and they tried to indoctrinate them so that over time, these young men would become leaders in Babylon, and instead of working against the empire, they would be cultured in the ways of the empire, leading as the empire wanted them. To. I sound like I'm talking about Star Wars here. Uh, <laughs> but you get the point. They were indoctrinating these young men to become good and culturally proficient Babylonians who helped lead the empire into unity. This was one of the strategies that they were using to make these new conquered people a part of their larger nation. This is actually how the book of Daniel describes it. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure that they're well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. And then the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So as it turns out, our boy Daniel, he was one of these young men who was selected to be trained up as a next-generation leader in Babylon. And over time, Daniel, he grew in influence and started getting selected for all of these leadership positions. And here's the thing that happened, though. Just as Daniel was becoming a rising star within the leader circles of Babylon, the king of Babylon, a guy named Belshazzar, he was assassinated, uh, and a dude named Darius became king. Now, to help you place this uh, in kind of the story, 
If you remember back to our Esther series, um, Darius is the, the dad of Xerxes. Uh, yeah, Xerxes was like one of the key characters in Esther. So Darius, he becomes king over what was Babylon at that point in time, but now he kind of transfers it to being a Persian empire instead of a Babylonian empire. And one of the first things that Darius does is that he sets out new provinces for this empire and he selects provincial governors who are going to reign over those new provinces. And what job is Daniel given? Daniel becomes one of the supervisors of these provincial governors. So this new king, he sees that Daniel was pretty skilled and he says, hey, I want you to be the supervisor for all these provincial governors out there. This is how the book of Daniel describes it. This is chapter 6, verse 1. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and to protect the king's interests. So Daniel gets this job. It's a big deal, supervisor of provincial governors. And it does not take very long for Daniel to get noticed again by Darius to the point of him being promoted to oversee the entire empire. There was just something about Daniel that Darius took note of. Check out verse 3. This is what it says. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Like I said, Daniel just had that something special that set him apart from everyone else. It said he had great ability and the king wanted him to oversee everything. Now, I'm not sure how you feel when some like new guy shows up at work and is so stupidly good at everything that they do that it just makes you look bad. But Daniel's co-workers were not excited about the fact that the king had taken such notice of him. So they were like, hey, we got to find something to discredit Daniel. So they started looking around. They were like, hey, you go and see if you can dig up any dirt from his old girlfriends. Maybe they'll find out that he did something bad and we can use it against him. Then they found someone else and they're like, you go look at his MySpace because they didn't have Facebook back then. And... Uh, <laughs> And see if you can find anything bad on there. And you, you go to the people of his hometown. Maybe they know a bad character trait that he has. And they tried to dig up some dirt on him to discredit him. And this is how verse 4 explains it. It says, then the, other, then the other administrators and high officers, they began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. Now, why couldn't they find anything to criticize? This is the really important part for us. It says, he was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. You see that? Daniel, he didn't just have tremendous skill or intelligence or some superhuman ability to remember all the factoids about the empire. He was also consistent in the way that he lived. He was faithful. He was always responsible, and he was completely trustworthy. Now, this is a really important point, and I want to make sure that I, 
um, make a distinction here. This point is an inference from the passage and not the main point that the passage is trying to make, but it is still true. And that is that you can be the most skilled, you can be the most talented, you can be the most intelligent person out there, but what tends to set people apart in life is doing things with consistency. Daniel had great ability, but more than that, he was consistent in his relationship with God, or as our passage tells it, he was faithful. He was consistent in how he carried out his work duties, or like verse 4 says, he was always responsible, and he was consistent in relationships. It says he was completely trustworthy. Daniel had a consistency that set him apart. So what did Daniel's opponents do? Well, basically, they're like, huh, we were really hoping we would find something that we could use against him. But I guess if there's nothing that we can find from his life to use against him, we will just take his consistency and use that against him. We know that he's extremely committed to his God, this Yahweh person, so we're going to find a way to use his consistent relationship with God as a tool to defeat him. This is what verse 5 says. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So these political opponents of Daniel, they went to the king and used some flattery and they said, long live King Darius. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors. By the way, this is a law because Daniel's definitely not in a, this is a lie because Daniel's not in agreement here. But he says, we're all in agreement that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions, and now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So, King Darius signed the law. Now, what do you think that Daniel, who was consistent in his relationship with God, did at this? Well, yeah, he did exactly what he had always done. He kept up his prayer life in his worship of the God of the Bible. This is what our passage says. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Note some of those key phrases here. Daniel went home and knelt down as usual. And he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done. This is so important. Daniel had always been consistent in his prayer and in his connection to God. And that consistency, which he had when times were good, it paid off and helped him stay strong when times were hard. Check out what happens next. It says, Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. 
did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of the lions? Yes, the king replied. That decision stands. It is an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, that man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. And in the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to him, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. Let's just pause and talk about how dope it is just to have a den of lions waiting around. He's just like, yeah, I got a den of lions on the side. Well, Daniel ended up being thrown into this den of lions and left overnight. And the next day, the king came to, the lions, to this lion's den to see what happens. And it says, very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God. Was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, long live the king. <laughs> and long live me, I guess. <laughs> My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Now, here's an incredibly important question to ask. When did Daniel learn to trust God? When did Daniel learn this kind of trust that sustained him in the lion's den? Was it when the decree came out that he could worship no one but Darius? Was it when he was tossed into the lion's den? I think not. I think that Daniel's faith was built in that consistent day after day, week after week routine of seeking God in prayer and serving him in obedience. He was consistent in his relationship with God and when it came time for his faith to be tested, his consistency paid dividends in helping him trust in his God and Savior. Now we look at Daniel's life and it's easy for us to think, yeah, this is an unrealistic story for me because I could have never done what he did. I would have faltered right away when the decree to not pray came out. But here's the thing we need to see. Daniel did with consistency what many of us do occasionally. He sought the Lord day after day, week after week, and through that, he developed a faith and trust. And when it came time for him to lean into that trust, he had grown able to stick with God even when the circumstances were impossible. 
At this point in looking at Daniel's life, it's easy for us to feel discouraged. Many of us, myself included, were like, yep, I'm in trouble because the only thing I'm consistent at is being inconsistent. And that's where it's incredibly important to remember this gospel truth. Our consistency is not what saves us. Jesus is. We are broken human beings who even when we try our hardest tend to screw things up. We are inconsistent in our relationships. We're inconsistent in our spiritual practices. We're inconsistent in our obedience to God's commands. And the good news of Jesus is not just that he helps us be consistent. More importantly, it is that even though we are inconsistent, he offers us forgiveness and inclusion into the family of God through faith. It is by simply trusting in Jesus that we are given eternal life. But that being said, we can't miss the reality that Jesus does still ask us to try and live into this new life that he's given us more fully and to try and live with consistency in the ways that he asks us. We cannot escape passages like the one that we read earlier in Titus 2 that says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. By the way, that's a reference to Jesus. It teaches us to say no, it again being the grace of God that appeared to us, aka Jesus. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Paul is showing us that two things sit right next to each other. The grace of God that saves us and the grace of God that teaches us to say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. We are saved by placing our faith in Jesus, but Jesus asks us to try and live consistently into his ways. And that's why today we are recognizing the huge impact that consistency does have on our lives. Consistency is one of the most transformative decisions that we can make. But we're also recognizing our tendency as humans to be inconsistent. And so what are we doing? We are pre-deciding that with God's help, we are going to strive to be more consistent. Now this sermon series, we're trying to be as practical as we can. If I was like, let's pray and go home, you'd be like, that wasn't helpful. I'm just left thinking like, oh no, I'm in trouble. So let's ask the question, how do we grow in our consistency? Well, the first thing that we can do is we can ask God to help. And this step is really easy to gloss over, but we need to make sure we take this part seriously. Coming to God and saying, Father, I know that I'm not as consistent as I should be. I know that I'm not always consistent in the way I parent, in the way that I work, in the way that I come and try and meet with you, uh, help me. Forgive me of the times that I've fallen short and help me live more fully into your ways. By doing this, we do a couple things. We admit to God that we need his help. We admit to ourselves that we need his help. And by asking him to come and help us with our consistency, we are asking the all-powerful creator of the universe to work his transformative ways in our heart. So the first thing we can do is we can ask God for help. But a second thing we can do is this. 
identify and clarify your why. It's amazing what the power of why can do in our lives. Here's just an example. Say you want to eat healthier and you say to yourself, self, I need to eat healthier because I guess I should be a healthier person. That's not a super powerful why, is it? But if you go to the doctor and your doctor's like, dude, you need to change or you are going to die. You might change, huh? That's a much powerful why when you have that. Now, when we take some time to clarify our why and understand what we are truly trying to do with our consistency, it can be tremendously helpful. Here's just a personal example of this. Uh, I have always been decently healthy and active, but I've never been that consistent in my exercise or in my diet. But then something happened about nine months ago that totally redefined my why. My wife got pregnant and I realized when my son is 25, I'm going to be 60 years old. Oh my gosh, I know, I know. Now, here's, here's a, <laughs> here is the deal with 60-year-olds, though. I know. Preface, 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 preface. Not trying to offend anyone. Clarification. There are some 60-year-olds who are young. You're active. You're doing things. You're engaged in a lot of different ways. And there are some 60-year-olds who just don't seem as young. And there's a lot that goes into that, genetics, things that happen to us in life. But our choices, our diet, our fitness routine can play a tremendous role in the type of 60-year-old we become. And I'm really hoping that when my son is 25 and he's like, hey, why don't you come to Montana with me and hike around in the mountains? I'm able to be like, if you slow down a little bit, I can. I want to be the type of 60-year-old who's able to do things with my son and not feel like I'm going to die. That's a huge why, isn't it? A huge why. When we clarify our why, it can help us in our consistency. Now, the really cool thing here is that Scripture clarifies a lot of whys for us that can be hugely powerful. For example, why be consistent in prayer? Well, Jesus said, remain in me, and I will remain in you. A branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. If your why for trying to live a life of prayer is, ah, Pastor James told me I should pray more, that's a crummy why. But if your why is, I want to stay connected to Jesus, because I know I cannot survive without being connected to him. And I know if I want to see the fruit of his lifestyle in my life, I have to stay connected to him. That's a powerful why. That is a powerful why. So the second thing we can do after we ask God for help, we can clarify our why. But next, you've got a plan to fail. How many people here can confidently say that you are always consistent with everything that you want to be consistent with? Anyone? Anyone? No? That's because no one is perfectly consistent. The truth of the matter is that none of us will ever be perfectly consistent at anything. 
I say that partly to encourage you, partly to make me feel better about myself as well. We just don't always get our consistency right. But if we don't plan to fail, this is what happens. Either we get frustrated and we say, ah, I guess I can't do this, so we give up altogether. Or if we don't already have a plan to get back at it, we simply let ourselves fall further and further out of the habit until we stop doing it altogether. Both of those things aren't very helpful. But if we have a plan for what we're going to do when we fail, it helps us pick things back up and keep trying even when it didn't work out last time. So here's a little mantra that I heard when planning for this sermon that I think can be really helpful for when you find yourself failing with consistency. It says, keep it simple, keep it short. If you miss one day, don't miss two. For example, if you want to find some time to pray with your spouse every week, but you keep dropping the ball, keep it, keep it simple. Maybe when you sit down for a meal together, you just share some of the things that on your, are on your heart and you spend two minutes praying together. It's a really simple plan for how to make prayer happen. And don't plan to do it for hours and hours and hours and hours. If you're like, I want to pray with my spouse three times a week, I guess I need to designate eh, maybe nine hours to make this happen. That's just not going to happen, is it? Keep it short. And if you miss one day, don't miss two. If you're like, I didn't do it yesterday, make sure that you do it today. If you didn't do it today, make sure that you do it tomorrow. Keep it simple. Keep it short. If you miss one day, don't miss two. And finally, if you can, try and fall in love with the process. Here's what I mean. If you start to do things that you're trying to be consistent at in a way that you enjoy, you are more likely to keep doing it. With me, um, with my quiet time, for example, uh, I really enjoy a good cup of coffee. And so I will often try and pair my morning time of scripture reading and prayer with like a slamming cup of joe. I get out my grinder and I fresh grind my beans and I get out my Chemex and a little amazing bleach-free uh, um, filter and I like slow pour over with my Chemex and I smell it and it's amazing. And then I sit down with that delicious cup of coffee that I'm very excited to have with my journal and my Bible and my pen that I love and I have my quiet time. And because I'm pairing this with things that I enjoy, I am much more likely to do it. Now, that's not going to work for everything. For example, that I have heard that there are some things about parenting that are just not enjoyable. Uh, <laughs> so with some of the things we're trying to be consistent about, uh, pairing it with things that we love, falling in love with the process isn't going to work. But in the areas that we can, try and fall in love with that process. Because when you learn to enjoy it, you are much more likely to be consistent. Church, we are pre-deciding that with God's help, we're going to be consistent. So as we wrap up, I want you to answer this question. What is one area that I think God is encouraging me to be more consistent in? Is it my prayer life? Is it getting in the Word? Is it the way that I intentionally try and reach out to those in my church community? Is it my parenting? Is it serving? Is it my church attendance? Is it my integrity at work? What is one area that I think God is encouraging me to be more consistent in? And then this week, I want you to ask for help from God 
I want you to spend some time clarifying what your why is. I want you to make a plan. What am I going to do when I fail so I don't get out of the habit? And if you can, how are you going to try and fall in love with the process? Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for the fact that even though we have a million shortcomings, you love us and care about us and have invited us to eternal life simply through faith and trust in you. We pray that we may strive to be consistent in the areas that you want us to be consistent in. Help us understand our why. Show us that you are there helping us. And Father, as we continue to grow, let that decision we're making now to be consistent impact our lives for the years to come. We pray this in your name. Amen.